Welcome to the Underline Podcast. Underline seeks to embolden and equip those who have been called to a life of service. We strive to create a community where iron can sharpen iron, and believers will boldly live out their faith as lions. Everybody, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I think uh, most of y'all are familiar faces, um, but for those of you who aren't, if this is your first time, my name is Josh Cook. I'm one of the co-founders of ETL, along with Billy Vivian here. How's everybody doing? We are really excited that you've joined us on this Saturday afternoon, and we are beyond humbled and honored to be joined by Jay Warner Wallace. I mean, this is really awesome and exciting for us. I think it was a month and a half or two months ago that. Um, we were introduced to Jay Warner Wallace and we reached out and uh, he graciously agreed to do a webinar for us in June. And I was just thinking about this morning as I was praying and just thanking God for this opportunity. None of us knew where we would be as a country or vocationally, you know, two months ago when we set up this webinar. And, um, you know, for, for those of you who don't know, our mission at Enter the Line is to equip and embolden all those who've been called into a life of service. And we try to do that by bringing resources um, and just um, building a community where iron can sharpen iron. And I really can't yeah. think of anybody who would be more effective at sharpening us, equipping us during this time than Jay Warner Wallace. Um, for those of you that don't know who he is, I think everyone here is pretty familiar with your background, sir. But uh, Mr. Warner Wallace is a Famed homicide detective, cold case detective out of California. He's worked on some very high profile cases, been on Dateline, um, Fox, Court TV, among many others. He is a best selling author. If you've not read Cold Case Christianity, it is a must read. Um, and he's also one of the more well respected, well known uh, Christian apologists in the country today. So, what an honor it is to, to have you on with us, Mr. Oh, Warren. God, Wallace. please, first of all, it's not, <laughs> that's way too, the honor is to have. Jim Bontrager sitting right there with his bald head looking at us, okay, because that's the honor right there. He's part of this group, so that's good. Uh, but really glad to be with you guys. I mean, you know, uh, like all of you, we uh, didn't find, we didn't think we'd find ourselves. At the, I, I, I can't believe how quickly in, a, in an information culture, let me just start off by saying, isn't it interesting? Uh, for a lot of us, I'm, I'm 59, um, and so for a lot of us, we weren't kind of raised in a culture, an information culture. We came to this later. As a matter of fact, what we'll typically see, you'll see people describe Gen Z, high schoolers, you'll see them described as, as um, digital natives. Where I'm not a digital native, right? Uh, we were digital immigrants. We came to this technology later. Uh, there are kids, though, who are, are in this culture right now who have got no other experience uh, aside from a digital experience where they've had that phone in there as part of their life, the digital information age is a part of their life forever. And one of the things I notice about it is that the ramp for, for something becoming viral used to be a lot longer. You know, when I was a kid, there was this thing called click clacks. Do you guys remember those? They were the two balls on two ropes and you would click them back and forth like a toy, right? It, it would take you about a year to publicize that, to get that in every store and to get every kid to have one. And then it take about six months for it to ramp. It's about an 18 month life cycle for a toy like that. That toy today is about five seconds. Okay. Because you can buy that on Amazon immediately and then you're over it. It, it seems that things ramp up much faster, but then they also ramp down much faster. 
And the news cycle is kind of like that, right? So you have, you know, we had the coronavirus and that news cycle was about three weeks into it. Weren't you tired of it? I was tired of it too. We, were, we get informational fatigue. And then what happens when we have the protesting? Well, trust me, there'll be informational fatigue. That movement will also slide back down into nowhere quickly because we, we're in a, a system right now, the information age in which everything has a very short shelf life. And I think if you've got transcendent things you're trying to communicate to a culture, you probably don't want to be in this age because nothing lasts more than about three weeks in the information age. But I think you're right. We just didn't see where we were going to be a month ago. And but I also think as quickly as it comes on us like this, there'll be something else, in the, especially as we get closer to the election, there'll be something else that becomes the viral thing that everyone's talking about. I think it's our duty to kind of weather through periods like this, knowing that the shelf life is shorter now that we're in this age. Mm. That's By the way, that I'm we drinking my, my, you're drinking your healthy fluids. I'm going to be drinking my healthy fluid while we're talking. So, yeah. So is that something that you think uh, we need to kind of either not like enable, but adapt to, or how do we combat that as leaders? Um, like who have, who are driven by faith, right? Where it's, do we just kind of accept that and say, Hey, we're going to give them something. We'll, we'll let it go for about two weeks. And then we got to make sure we have something ready for them later. Or? Well, I, I mean, look, we're problem solvers. So we don't have the luxury of waiting for something to blow over, right? We're going to have to adapt quickly and react quickly as cold. And so I still am a chaplain at my agency. I still spend a lot of time at my agency. Um, and my son is there. So I, I came out of a background where my dad started out at the same agency with my name. He started in 1961. And he worked 28 years there. I did my 25. My son is about eight years into his. We all have the same name. Jim Wallace has been working at that agency for 60 years. Um, and, and so we get a chance to kind of talk about this. So my dad's view, if I was, my dad's still alive, he's 80. And as I talked to him about his experience through the Watts summer riots, my experience through the Rodney King and the trial, and O.J. Simpson, and then my son's experience now through all, all of this. Um, there are some, you know, basically we're, we're doing the same job, guys. Uh, things change a little bit, but they don't really change that much. Uh, but what has changed is the nature of, of um, the information age makes all of us uh, vulnerable in a way that we never were before. If you think that somehow cameras, body cameras, and all the technology is going to help or hurt us, I'm not sure where I fall on that. Because I've seen great video come out that I would think, oh, that's the kind of thing that would help uh, clarify a situation, only to see that it actually clouds the situation. <laughs> because you, one thing we know for sure, in body cameras, you cannot... Uh, you really get the uh, the officer's perspective. I mean, it's not coming through your eyeballs. It's not coming through your your tunnel vision focus. It shows everything with the same uniformity, and as if I am perceiving it that way. Of course, I'm not. I can watch a video even and only really pick up the one thing I'm focused on in that video. But but if I have a video of everything, why didn't you spot that thing over there? Well, because that's not the way people see things. <laughs> So I don't even know if, if what we're doing is giving us clarity or, or not, but I do know that we're in a new age and the stuff that my dad would have been resisted or that I would have said, no, no, no. Well, we're not going to have a choice on some of those things because we're just, and you probably aren't even considering choices because you're not given those choices in your generation of police officers. I suspect that these are just being presented to you as you're going to do it this way now. So, so I don't think we have the luxury of, of, of waiting but I just, I just, what I want us to do is to persevere. Look, Jimmy wrote an article, which you, you all posted, and I thought that was awesome, my son. In that article, he was just writing it out of frustration. That what he hears is lots of folks who are saying, I'm out. I got probably four emails from people who read that article 
who said, yeah, I'm retiring. I'm not retiring early. I just, I was going to stay two more years. I'm done. Or I'm looking for a new job. Because you're in a place maybe where, you know, in Southern California, this, it's hard to find another job like this one, right, in Southern California. You can't just, but if you're only making a little bit of money and you're working in, let's say, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, it might be easier to leave this job or something that's similar. And so people are making those choices. And he was frustrated with that. And he simply wanted to say, hey, we at least need to persevere. And, and why are we doing this? Are we doing this because we hoped that we'd have this hopefully we're all doing this in this one that aren't because we're talking about it from a Christian perspective, because we think we have a calling to something that's higher than even our own desire to serve the public, right? That we do this as a calling from God. And so that doesn't go away even in the worst situation. But if you don't have that transcendent thing that keeps you in the job, I do see a lot of people saying I'm done because because I was only in the job because it paid pretty well. I got good time off, had good flexible work hours we used to hire people at our agency with that ad line. Come over to our agency. We pay better than anybody else in the county. We've got flexible hours. And all the interviews are like, yeah, I started over here. I've got great vacations. Really, that's why you're – so what happens the first time you don't get your, your days off on your calendar? What happens the first time you, somebody else gets your shift? Well, now you're out because the only reason why I came was because you offered me all these ben- – no, we need you to come because you feel called by God to come. And even if it's crappy today – you still feel that calling on your life. That doesn't change. And that's, that's the thing that I, I think we have to kind of focus on in these kinds of times. It's first off, before I ask my question is um, we're keeping this pretty informal guys. So if you want to ask a question, just send it in through the chat feature and then I'll call on you once we kind of have a break in the conversation, you guys can ask it yourself to, um, to Jim. So, um, but to kind of follow up on what you're saying, Jim, um, it's, it's like a conversation I was having with somebody uh, a couple of days ago and um, he was like, Hey man, I'm starting to look for another job. He's about, I think eight or nine years in. And uh, yeah. I was like, really? I was like, we just got this big raise. Like we're making pretty good money. You know, it's still like, this is still a pretty lucrative profession, even though all this going on and he's like, man, it is not worth, you know, X amount of dollars to possibly get charged with murder for doing my job. And I was like, I get it. I get it. So how do you, how are you encouraging those guys who are coming at you and saying, Hey, I want to leave or, Hey, I think I'm just going to pursue something else. How are you encouraging them to either want to stay or reconsider or are you not? Well, it depends on the agency. So I'm in a place in in Los Angeles County where we probably have three dozen municipal agencies. It's not just LAPD here. There's Burbank and Glendale and you you name, they're all every, every city for the most part is, is divided into its own municipality of a certain size. And then whatever's not incorporated um, is uh, governed by the sheriff's department. So there's so many places you could work in LA County. You, You could, you've got dozens of options here, but each one is governed differently. And each one has a different ethos and a different commitment on the part of leadership and the chief as to what it, what it is they will. Here's my fear. My fear is that the, this, this, this mass um, uh, information overload is taking choices away from, from chiefs where, where, because they're being pressured by their city managers are being pressured by their, by their mayors and by the city councils and they're caving, you know, um, for, I don't know the whole situation in Atlanta. I know there's lots of people who are working in Atlanta that are unhappy because they've, they've emailed me. But, but it's interesting to me that before they charged the officers in that case, the, the chief resigned. Now, I, I granted, a lot of people were, were, were you know, not happy with the chief who were from the ranks, general ranks. But it's interesting to me that a lot of this is going to come down to, will you as chief do what it is I, that the city council or the DA or whatever the pressure is coming from, will you as chief go along with that program? Because here's the problem. 
we are working in something called law enforcement. <laughs> There's an element of force that is necessary in law enforcement. You cannot remove the force and do law enforcement. I'm not sure what you'd call it. I'm not sure what it would be. And I don't think that most people understand what officers go through on a daily basis, what you have to see and how much force is necessary, right? In order to, um, to do this job, to do it well, to do it in a way that's safe. And 99.99% of the time, you're gonna do that in a way that no one's gonna question. Uh, but the problem, of course, is do you have do you, so it's, I, it's really what it comes down to is when someone calls me and says, "What do you think?" Well, I'd have to know something about your your command staff. I have to know something about the ethos of your your agency to know if this is something you can just muscle through and persevere, right? Because if it, it may be that I'm seeing something on the part of your command staff, where I'm like, "Wow, you know what? They're just the, the first time something bad happens. I think they'll probably cave." Well, then I do think it's hard for us to figure out. That's why I'm telling you, you've got to decide. Um, are you willing to do this job as a calling from God? Because if you are, number one, you're always going to be compelled to look to God's word to figure out, well, how do I handle any situation? Number two, hopefully you're the character that you're not going to do stuff that you shouldn't be doing anyway. And number three, you're going to be able to move through seasons where like, you know, look, I get it. Um, God's got my back on this and I'm trusting God for this. And that's what's going to move you forward rather than I trust my chief and my command staff to make their decision to support me in what I think is a good use of force. Um, you may not, you know, again, what if my sheep, well, I'm trusting that if I do what I'm supposed to do, that God's got my back. Now, if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, I expect to be punished. <laughs> but if I do what I'm supposed to do, now, here's the problem. People think, well, yeah, you do what you're supposed to do, and then you get punished for something you didn't even do. That's where God's got to have your back. And you have to trust that, that process you go through is, uh, is that you're in God's hand during that process. And even though it may seem like he's not there, uh, you have to trust that that's in fact the case. That that should give us an advantage as Christian officers that, that the, the unbelieving world doesn't have. But we'll see. It's, that's why I say I think for the most part, I sympathize and understand, and I empathize with officers who are like, I'm not sure this is for me. Well, then maybe it's not for you. It's not for everyone, okay? But it's going to require another level of commitment, not just commitment to training, not a commitment to whether you can shoot or whether you can drive or whether you can wrestle. It's going to be a commitment to God. Am I willing to trust God through this season? Um, and this is where Jimmy's at. Jimmy's, that's why he wrote that article. He's like, look, I'm just going to trust. You know, the problem is he was raised as the namesake of the first patriarch, my dad, who was, you know, we idolized as a cop. And then he heard all my stories growing up. And he felt like this is, I mean, he, I think he thinks he's going to have a kid named Jimmy. <laughs> so, so if that's the case, I think he's thinking about how far does this go? Um, but I think a lot of this for him is, let me give you an analogy that we've talked about before. You know, the Avengers movies, superheroes, Jimmy always saw himself that way, that this is what superheroes do. They put on uniforms and they go out and do things that nobody else wants them you know, can do. And that's how he saw this work. But if you look at the Avengers, those folks are beloved. Captain America, all those guys, you know, they go out, they fight publicly. People are like, woohoo, Captain America is here. They're like cheering them on. Yeah, this is great, you know. That's not who we are anymore. No, we're much more like um, X-Men, right? Not trusted. Nobody wants you around. Think you're all a bunch of mutants. But in the end of the day, you end up saving the world. And nobody likes you afterwards. And nobody wants to hang out with you afterwards. <laughs> but somehow, Professor X has convinced you that you ought to be this guy, and you ought to do that, even though nobody likes you. 
that's really where we are right now is we're no longer the Avengers. We are the X-Men. That's a, a great analogy. And uh, going back to where you're talking about how this is, you know, a calling from God versus just a vocation. Would you, would you touch on that a little bit further about what this looks like as a calling, especially as a calling from God, as a biblical calling to step into? Well, okay. So, so when we feel callings, like I, I was a pastor for you. So I, I didn't become a Christian until I was 35. So I didn't believe any of this was true. And I was very much um, convinced that you guys were all crazy. Um, but then when I started to examine the gospels, using this template that I use for cold cases, uh, it started to click for me. And then I thought, well, I'd like to know a little more. So I ultimately um, attended a seminary. I uh, got a seminary degree. I, I pastored my own kids as they were, as they were kids. When they became high schoolers, I was the youth pastor. Then I was the lead pastor for six years. Then I wrote my first book. And I was all that time bivocational. All that time I was working cold cases or homicides, for either fresh homicides for the first six years and then cold cases for another 10 after that. And, and so I was, you know, I was always involved in church and that kind of calling on church service can teach us something about this kind of calling. Because in the end, I tell people all the time when we're getting ready to do this, you don't go in to service as a pastor unless your wife agrees that you are called to be a pastor because you're going to put so much demand on her life. Every pastor's wife is expected to run Bible studies for zero, for free, and work just as hard as the lead pastor. And so this is what happens to pastor's wives. And so if, you, if she doesn't feel committed to that, if that's not who she is, then that's probably not your calling. You're, you're shaped for something else because you do this as a couple. That's what I think law enforcement is. I think it's harder for people. Well, maybe it isn't. I mean, I met my wife nine years before I became a police officer. So uh, as I look back at that, you know, she didn't see that coming. I was in the arts. I have a master's degree in architecture. I was working as an architect in Santa Monica when I became a police officer. So, I mean, a lot of that she just didn't see coming. And I'm sure it was probably hard because it's a calling. And if you don't think it's a calling, uh, look at how many people in our profession get divorced. So the first thing I would say about calling is it involves more than just you. Also, people who think they're being called into service uh, as, a, as a pastoral service or on the missions field, they are prayerfully seeking that. Is, is that true? And they're seeking the counsel of other wise Christians who maybe already in that profession to see, am I really being called for this? Am I shaped for this? And, and God's going to not gonna call people who aren't shaped for something. So a lot of our approach to a, to a calling is a little bit different. Number one, we're in prayer. We're including our wife as part of that calling if we're married. Uh, we're actually talking to other people who are in the profession beforehand and people who are Christians to see, is God really calling me to this, right? And we expect that callings are like marriage, right? You, I'm committed to my marriage, more committed to my marriage than I am. I, I love my marriage more than I love Susie. I tell her that all the time. Sorry, it's just true. But my commitment to marriage over extends over my commitment to her. And that means that even in the rotten, the worst day we could have together, I'm just as committed to my marriage as I was on the best day we have together. That commitment to marriage transcends my commitment to her. We have to be so committed to our calling as law enforcement, as police officers, that when you have the worst shift possible, you don't feel any less committed. This is Jimmy's position. The problem with Jim is, I have two sons. My other son's a doctor. Jimmy's problem is that he loves, he loves the profession. He's loved it since he was a kid before he ever did it. 
And that's his, that's a good thing, but it's also a hard thing because there's no other options for him. He's got a bachelor's degree in psychology, but he's not going anywhere. He's going to stay in this profession because he's so in love with the profession. But that's kind of what callings are about. You have to be so in love with the calling that the worst day on the mission field or the worst day in church, you're still committed to the calling. So I think that's part of what is involved in a calling. I think a lot of people resonate with that because I think a lot of people here who are police officers that is it is their calling and they can't imagine doing anything else so for those right. of us who are not quote-unquote stuck but for those of us who aren't going anywhere but are you know deep in it in the trenches how do you encourage those Christian officers and you know how would what would you say to the Christian officers who are committed to sticking it out to to make sure that they're well equipped to keep doing their job and, and what do they need to be doing now more than ever during this time Okay, so I'm looking at Stephen right now. Okay, so Stephen, are you are you are you are you, are you sir, just uh, thumb up or thumb down? Are you an officer? Are you in the uh, leadership? Are you a sergeant, lieutenant? Are, are you? Uh, yes, I've been a sergeant three times over in the Marine Corps, the Army, and now as a police officer. Okay, excellent. So here's what I would say. Um, that's the that's the path. I didn't take this path. I, I I stayed. My dad was a sergeant when he retired, but I did not promote. I, I I was in seminary when everyone else was taking the sergeant's tests, so I didn't get a chance to study for the sergeant's. Test. I was just tapped out. I couldn't do everything, so I was studying in seminary. It took me like nine years to graduate seminary because I was working full time. So I will just tell you that um, that's the path that I suggest for my son, though. Um, because I think that what has to happen is um, I loved working cold cases, so I didn't want to do anything else. I just wanted to work cold cases, and I didn't want to promote out of that position and not be able to do these cases anymore. Um, but my son kind of feels the same way, but I've told him it's time for um, us who are uh, Christians to assume positions of leadership within our agency. And I always tell him, look, dude, you know what's going to promote, why you want to promote? You probably feel the same way, guys, because you're in this job and you're an officer and suddenly you realize that they're promoting these knuckleheads. You think, I don't want to be that dude's, I don't want that dude to be my my sergeant, right? I mean, you know, you see that, right? So you're like, hey, I'm going to promote because I don't want that knucklehead, uh, you know, making my schedule. And that's kind of a wrong reason to promote. What I tell Jimmy is all the time is that we are in the business of, of forming uh, opinions, minds, and trajectories. We, we are in that business as leaders. And if you want to change, we need somebody who is ambitious about making the change from a position of leadership, of promotion, because that's where you're going to have a voice at the command table. That's where you're going to have a voice. I, I did a lot of ethics training for my agency the last three years I was there, but they all knew I chose not to promote. And my friends at that time were now the chief and all the captains. So I would sit at those tables kind of talking about ethics with the guys who I went to the academy with. But by the time I was done, they were all leadership positions. I was not. But they still gave me a chance to input a Christian worldview when none of them were Christians. But they said, when we go to ethics training, what do, what do we do? Well, why call me? What is it about, why would you call me? Because I think they had a sense, and this is why I say, Stephen, you're in a great position, because you need now to carry this Christian worldview into your command staff. So I would say to all of you who are Christians, who are thinking, you know what, I just love patrol. That's, that's been Jimmy's thing. Like, he's working on the cover right now. And I know if he had a choice to go back to patrol, he would go back to patrol, because he just loves it. Um, that's where the superhero stuff happens. Um, but I, I, I tell him, no, look, dude, you need to promote. No, I don't ever want to promote. You will not change this agency as one of the hundreds of officers. You will change the agency as you move up the ranks in the agency and have a greater and greater voice in the agency. And so I, I would just pr- encourage you, although most of us think as, as officers, no, I don't want to stop working. Uh, actually, 
your work's going to shift. You're now not going to be out there crushing crime as much as you're going to be out there mentoring young people to be the best they can be and finding ways to communicate a Christian worldview to a team without using without them even knowing it's a Christian worldview. Because it turns out the values of a Christian, my dad is not a Christian, but he loves what the Christian worldview does to organizations and to the country. He would much rather live in a country that believes this thing he thinks is a lie, but he thinks it's the most useful lie possible. And so he's in favor of the useful lie. Well, it turns out you can actually train up people in ethics programs where you are, are, are taking a Christian perspective and they don't even know it. And, and that's where I think it would be helpful. So that's why I say to you guys, uh, Stephen, keep on promoting. And what you want to do, and, and by the way, the way we promote is we serve. It's that backward, that senseless, backward leadership style of Jesus of Nazareth that ends up um, changing hearts and minds. You know, there's two ways to get someone to get that, that, that sheep through that gate. One, I can just take that stick and just beat its butt until it moves through the gate. I can push it through. Or I can coax it through. And when I coax it through and it makes the decision to go through the gate on its own, well, now it's a gate. It, 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 that's its business. It goes through gates because it, it thinks it's its own idea. It turns out that you, it, if I want someone to really embrace an ethic, I cannot uh, enforce this on them. They can obey it, but they won't ever accept it. But I can woo them toward it. I can convince them that this is what they ought to do. And if I can do that, they will always make the choice on their own. And I won't have to force them again. So I think that what we want is be in positions of leadership to help woo an entire organization toward their, doing the right thing. I think that's brilliant. I think it's tough because I think for someone who's not in a, le- a formal leader, leadership position in my department, you know, it's, it's not a position of envy, you know, to want to be a supervisor or a sergeant. And one of the things right. you hear a lot about is that I get promoted and I go up, but then it's just the politics crush me. And then okay, but here's the thing. We, are, we have accepted the idea that a promotion is just another bunch of paperwork pushing, uh, politics, dealing with city. No, it can't. I want you to do something different with it. How many of you, honestly, think about all your supervisors, all your sergeants, all your lieutenants, all your captains. How many of them do you consider to be making an active effort to mentor you? I'm guessing zero. I guess when you get there, it's just about whatever life you're now living as a lieutenant. You're making more money. You just take, check the boxes through all the things you're supposed to do now. You're not seeing it as you are now dad, and you have to mentor an entire group of young people to help them. To, to, what, 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 isn't it interesting that we will go to a Zoom in an effort to hear about what should we do when you've got a huge command staff of sergeants, lieutenants, and, and captains, and a chief that are probably not having this conversation with any of you? That's what I'm looking for from Jimmy. I'm looking for him to, to step into that position and take on the extra added, I mean, calendar it, create a, your own personal program of mentorship, and then try to convince others to adopt this as, a, as an agency strategy. Mentorship means two things. It means a relationship connected to a truth claim. So I can teach things to my guys, but I was the leader of my uh, homicide team for years. And I could teach them, but if I have no relationship with them, they're not going to listen to me. We're cops, dude. We don't listen to anybody, okay? That's just the nature of the business. So I could do this, and there's not, nothing going to happen. But if I can develop a relationship with them, you know, I, I bought a lot of meals for my, for my people I was working with. 
people who wanted to be lieutenant and they want to know how do I get through that oral board? Well, I've done a lot of coaching for oral boards. So yeah, I'll take you to lunch. And I'll, because sh- what I'm trying to do at that lunch is not just give him the, the, the five things that will make him successful on the oral board. I'm trying to teach him a Christian worldview because if he has that Christian worldview and he's able to articulate it in an oral board, he's going to be successful. Because it turns out what makes you successful is not your articulation, it's the Christian worldview. So what I want to be able to do is to help them see the value in that. Well, you're not going to do that by just giving information. I could just send you an email to all the whole list. I'm not going to do that. We're going to go to lunch. Because it's that combination of mentoring is a combination of relationships and then information. And that means that if you're going to do this as a sergeant or as a lieutenant, you're going to have to get on your calendar and say, what it's going to cost you something. You may not be able to do all of it on duty. But you've got to put it on your calendar because what you put on a calendar, you know, is what gets done. And so you've got to put it on a calendar. Who, who are my mentors? And who am I mentoring? And by the way, who are your mentors? But, you know, you see this all the time in Scripture, right? There's the multitude, and there's the 12, and there's the three. Well, you know those three were getting a lot more. Those three are at the Mount of, of Transfiguration, okay? The other 12 aren't there. Those three were deeply mentored. Those 12 were mentored, but not quite as deeply. And the masses were just the masses. So who are your 12? Who are your three? Who are you actually raising up to be the next generation of Christian leaders in your, and by the way, this means that this is not a, not a complaint party. We're not going to get together and complain about all the staff and why the chief sucks, even if your chief sucks, because that's not what we're going to do. That's not going to fix it. Now, you're going to be something. And someday that the person that you're being might be the person who's promoted to chief. But what we're not going to do is complain about how everybody else is not who we think they should be. You know, you don't get any credit, as Jesus said, for loving those who, who love you. Uh, you get credit for loving the people who are jerks, which probably right now you're thinking is about everybody you're working with. <laughs> so, so this is a great target field for us, a great mission field for us to exercise this, this Jesus muscle. That's convicting. I mean, it is so tempting and I'm guilty of it all the time is instead of stepping up and doing something and I'll be the first one to just complain. Um, Jim, you sent in a really good question. I want to turn it to you and let you ask that. First call, brother. It's good to see you. Good to see you too, man. This guy's, this guy has used more of our books in Washington, D.C. At, at Outreach than anybody I know. So you're awesome. Well, we're, we're going to keep doing it too, brother. Uh, uh, the world's getting bigger by the moment. So yeah. uh, I, I just really think, you know, I just love what you say about this. And I just want to get your thoughts. I think right now that we have the greatest opportunity as believers we'll ever have in our life. Yeah. You can look at it all, but if Jesus came to make beauty out of ashes, to give us a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, to bring hope to the you know, set the captives free, all that stuff. When we find our culture in the middle of meltdown and chaos, it's really when he says, now, folks, now it's time to step up to the plate. And I, I think one of the obstacles we have sometimes is the way we express uh, spiritual truth. You know, we uh, right now, we just had a pro-law enforcement rally uh, this was week, and there was tremendous pressure not to do it. Uh, the mayor, the chief, everybody thought they were going to melt down the, the town, and I felt like we needed to do it. And in it, I tried to take some biblical principles and put it before them. I talked about, number one, we need honorable police officers, and, and, and we can rally around the world honorable. And so I went back to 1957 IECP, Law Enforcement Code of Ethics, which we all know is built, built on a biblical model. And then I put that forth and said, we need to insist that this be the model that we all go forward on. And we need to train to it and everything else rather than just hanging in our, uh, hanging our agencies. And the second thing I said is we were built, uh, you know, as a nation of self-governing individuals, that self-government was built on a, a standard that said, love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of law. So yeah. what if we look back and say, 
if love does no harm to its neighbor, then I'm personally responsible. So the goal of this exercise isn't point the finger at you, it's to be the best me I can be so I can show you as a culture. And so those are two points that even the protesters there started applauding and rallying around. And so what I'm trying to say is, you know, what are your thoughts? Don't you think that we would be better served to number one, realize this is a sacred divine calling for such a time as this. Number two, that, that we have, we're the ones who know what relationships are. We're the ones that know what leadership is. We're the one who have the handbook on, on conflict resolution. And so it's important for us to take the spiritual principles, but put them in a secular sense that are relevant to the culture and help them to see, you know, and that's what starts leading them to, to the truth is, is, is finding a place of where we agree and because start walking toward it. You do change. Yeah, and I think part of this too is for all of us doing guys, saying, and, you know and, this already. And, and I stopped being you know, a different I, kind of Before I got saved, I probably spent uh, nine then, years. So it took a long time. Working in my But agency. after, I'd say five or six years, nine I realized years, it wasn't just some fad I was going to flip through. And I also was not a legalistic. Gangs, I, mean, I, I had no experience in church. I didn't know anyone was a Christian growing up. I tell you that no one in my family was a Christian. I'd never been to a church. before he got So I came in with no set of ground rules. I just knew that the Gospels were reliably telling. And I had tested these things evidentially, and I had principles in place. I wrote about them in Cold Case Christianity. I knew that this was true. So it changed me. But I wasn't preaching, and I wasn't legalistic about certain things. I wasn't like hung up on th certain theologies. I just knew that I could trust that the Gospels were reliably telling me about Jesus of Nazareth. And I, it, it, that opened every door for me afterwards with my team with the people I worked with, but it took years to do that. So Jim, I think we have to model this in front of people. They don't want to hear the principles laid out in five points. They want to see us live it so they can see if it's even tenable. Is this guy really for real? Cause you know who we are as cops. Look, I made a living assuming from the get go that every person talking to me is a liar. That works wonders for me, probably for you. If you assume everyone's telling you the truth and no one goes to jail and someone's probably going to get hurt. But if you assume everyone's a liar, you're going to be much more careful. Well, that's the attitude we all have as cops. And so I think the problem is not going to be convincing a culture that we want to change something. Maybe it is, but I think even hard as, as hard is convincing people we work with that we are trustworthy enough to follow in this regard. So I would say number one, there's no excuse. If you are the Christian on your team, you should be able to work the butt off everybody else on that team. No one should work harder than you. If you're the Christian on your group, if you're a SWAT, you should shoot better than anybody else. Sorry. You should probably be the first one there and the last one to leave. You should be modeling this amount of commitment um, that you don't have to say, it's because I'm a Christian. This is why I do this. No, you just have to model this so people realize this is part and package of what it is to be a Christian. So I think that that's the first thing. We need to model and be excellent at what we do. And then number two, we need to be completely humble. You know, it's that old principle in sports, right? When you, when you uh, win, you give all the credit to your teammates. When you lose, you take all the blame. That's what they do on the stand. I mean, you see this in, in, in press conferences. Good team leaders do that. And that's what we want to do as a, a part of a team. When, when we win, it's all because of you guys. When we lose, I can do better. Uh, and that's, that, that goes a long way toward influencing people. So I, I think a lot of this, again, is, is, is about us. We're, we're going to say things. And I'll tell you, I'll give you something, Jim, you make me think of this. If you ask me how we can fix this problem in, in agencies, we may disagree on this, you and I.
but this is how I usually put it. Like you're going to put this on your Facebook page, right? Imagine that we, you have rules for your group that you have on Facebook. So if you're establishing a Facebook club or a Facebook page, this is the three things you're going to need. Number one, who do you let in? Who gets to be on your page? Like you probably have some process by which you, we're not going to let anybody on the page. Like, are you a police officer? You're not, whatever. Two, um, what are the rules going to be for engagement once you're here? We're going to have rules on the Facebook page. You can't just call people idiots, you know, blah, blah, blah. Three, who's going to moderate the page? Someone's got to moderate the page. The things that make a Facebook page successful also make agencies successful. Who gets in? That's important. Uh, once they get in, do we train them? What are the rules? Are these acceptable rules? Do we understand why we have these rules? And then finally, how do we moderate this? How do we know what our guys are even doing? without hovering over them and micromanaging every single step and every single breath they take. Like, how do we moderate all that? But those three things, the entry point, the rules, and the moderation, it turns out, are make both things successful. Now, we can disagree about how we do that, but I will tell you that at our agency, let me tell you what I saw. If you were a, um, um, a backup line, uh, offensive lineman for the uh, New England Patriots and you were 6'6", 280, and you now retired and you applied at our agency, you're probably getting hired because we, we, we think, okay, you know, there's a certain physical aspect of the job, law enforcement, and you got a guy that's big and we love sports and we love athletes. So we're going to give him a serious look. Doesn't mean he has the character to do this job. He just has the physical ability to do the job, which we got to have, but we, we can test physical ability. Like, can you do a hundred pushups? That's easy. But what is his physical, what is his uh, psychological or, or character makeup? That's something we can't even test. How do you test that? We have all these person, give me a break. You know that when you're asking, I can't fake whether I can do 100 push-ups, but I can fake in an interview any kind of character I want you to think I have. It's really hard, I think, to hire the kind of people who aren't going to be a problem later for us. Right? It just is. Because you're not even going to be allowed to say, well, now I just want a Christian character. You can't do that. Most of the things we would have to ask to even, to even dig out what your character is, we're not allowed to even ask. One of the questions I always thought you should ask is, hey, new hire, um, tell me, in the last year, can you give me three or four things you did that weren't all about you? Things in your community, things with your family, whatever, that weren't all about you. Most people will be like, uh... Uh, I, I coached my kid in soccer. Dude, that was about you. That's your kid. Okay, you're his dad. Okay, I expect that. What did you do that wasn't about you? I've, I, this is a great kind of exposure of like, do we, are, we, are we really in a service industry? Do we really serve it? Have we never served anybody until we applied for this job? Now, my wife quick to remind me that if they'd asked that question of me being hired, they wouldn't have been able to hire me either. <laughs> so, so that's why I say, you really can't, what do you ask? To determine if someone has that kind of heart. You, I don't know what you could ask. So I think it's just so hard to hire, and people don't realize how hard that is. Because we think, well, we know that it requires a certain type of physical presence to do the job. So we often will look at that as a, as a leading kind of tip of the spear. But the reality of it is there's a lot more than just that. But I don't know. I think those are the three things, though. Now, I don't know how you guys feel about body cameras, but I, I see this as an inevitability. I do not think they solve problems. I think they raise as many questions as they solve. Again, cameras do not show you what I experienced in my tunnel vision in that night because now I can adjust lighting. I can, I mean, they don't even capture the lighting the way that my retina captured the lighting in the shoot. It's going to be really hard to draw some, but 
at the same time, I have a body camera on me at all times, and you do too. You know you do. Because in the end, I don't answer to my sergeant. I answer to my God. And that dude's watching me constantly. So I think in the end, I'm pretty comfortable. I'm really used to the idea of a 24-7 body camera because I'm stuck with it. Because I believe there is a God who knows everything I'm doing. And I have to, I have to apologize to that God constantly. So I think the idea of that we're going to be more monitored than ever before. Just get over that. By the way, if you have a body camera on in this kind of a situation, you're just one of four cameras that are filming this thing. <laughs> you want everybody else's camera to be the only camera? Because you know, it's not like in the, in the past where nobody had a Everyone's got a high-def camera sitting in their phone. I think we're stuck with this reality, folks. And, and I think we ought to um, embrace it. Now, this is, that's a controversial thing. I get it when I say that. My son wants to choke me sometimes because he's already seen how the body camera can, can be a problem and actually not depict what it was that he saw. So I, I get it. I don't know how we solve that problem, but I just think if there's going to be four out there anyway, how can we go wrong having the one that might actually show us the truth? Absolutely. Jim, go ahead. You said you have a backup question. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I'm dragging with you, brother. First of all, I, I absolutely agree that the foundation has to be lift something out. I mean, at the end of the day, if I'm not living it out, no way wants to hear from me, especially yeah. in law enforcement. You know, one of the biggest problems we have in trying to reach the culture is talking. You know, you have to go in the culture. You love unconditionally. I call it a vulture ministry. I sit up in the tree, wait for a crisis, come down, love on them, go back in the tree and wait for the next crisis. Right. And eventually they start looking for you. And then eventually once they start looking for you, then they start, you know, since you care, they care what you know. And once you start knowing you care, you start to explain to them that, listen, you have a job as a cop because people are self-centered and they don't care about the responsibilities of their fellow man. And don't you think that the good guys should be different than the bad guys? I, you should care about others more than yourself. And so then we start taking that whole transition to say, listen, the only way I can do that is to have integrity and to have carry. We talk about, I ask the average cop, do you believe that you're, are we the moral police? And they say, no, but I take them all the way on the journey to show that integrity says that it's firm adherence to a moral standard. Well, yeah. I, I, we, we call it, we have integrity on everything we have in this profession. So my point simply gets to be as I agree with you hundred percent, live it out loud and, yeah. and, and, and you're disqualified if you don't. But the second thing gets to be is you get to help the culture when you live it out consistently to start to discover where the problems are because you know what they are and help to put truth in a couch it in terms that they can start to track with and start to lead them in a dark time to a good place simply because they've run out of options and it's not working what they're currently trying. Well, let me tell you what I'm seeing in, in Christian culture, because I get now a chance to teach at churches almost every weekend. This has been a weird season because we, the coronavirus has kind of changed the way we're doing things. And we're doing a lot of it like this now. Uh, but I get a chance to talk to Christians, just making the case for Christianity, just trying to provide what is the evidence for Christianity? Why would you believe Christianity is true? And I, I'm going to tell you something, guys. Um, we are not a thoughtful group. Uh, we aren't. Uh, we're lazy. We're more than willing to go to church and have that pastor preach a service and that's the only time we'll probably open our bible that week and we're not doing any study on our own uh, although you're studying something look and before this all happened i can tell you we got two teams in los angeles for everything dodgers and angels rams and the chargers lakers and the clippers ducks and the kings i mean every sport we got every sport we got two of them okay and here i can tell you i was up to here in in sports. I, I love sports. I can tell you pretty much everything about all those teams. I'm spending time on that. And occasionally I have to stop and say, okay, enough already. I'm not spent. Why am I spending any more time on that? I need to focus on what is transcendent because that stuff is not making me a better person. 
um, it's not making my job any easier. It's not, it's not helping my son. It's not, it's not helping anybody. Uh, it's just this hobby I've decided to spend thousands of hours annually on. Uh, this is time, I think, for us. This is all hands on decks, folks. This is it. Um, you can't, like, your pastor can't be heavy lifting for you anymore. Your Christian school cannot be heavy lifting for your kids. You, you have to be doing the heavy lifting. You have to know God's word better than anything else. You have to actually be in, in the word. You have to actually be studying, not just what's in the word. There's two books that God gave us, okay? Don't take this for granted, but there are two books that God gave us. He gave us the book of special revelation, the book of scripture. But you go to Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. There's another book. It's called the book of nature. You have two books. Your kids want to know why would you believe about true, that God is true, and so do your fellow officers from probably not from the book of scripture. To be honest, they don't trust that book. But I can make a case for almost every biblical principle and for God's existence from the book of nature. And that's something they still will listen to. Because that is, what about the universe that actually demonstrates God's existence? What is it about the fine-tuning of the universe or a multiverse theory or whatever it may be? Big Bang cosmology, whatever it is you think there is. We can make a case for what we believe just from the book of nature. This is the time for us to be able to do that. Because what's going to happen is they think that we are the anti-science group. They think that we are the nutjob conspiracy theorist group. They think that we are the anti-vaccine, anti-anything. We are anti-anti-anti-education. Don't send your kids to college. Homeschool them at home. Don't even send them to school. I, mean, I don't know if you will. I, I read every day what's going on in the culture. And this is what's being said about us. And this is why they're really getting – this is, this is going to shift away from Christianity really quickly. All that's going to be left are people like you and I who believe this is true and can still change an entire industry, law enforcement, because we can reflect the nature of Jesus to the people around us. But listen, this is not just the nature you think Jesus has, because you have not, not read Scripture in the last five years. This is the nature that's revealed about Jesus in Scripture that you have to know like the back of your hand. I, I, I want to encourage you to start memorizing Scripture. I want to encourage you to be able to answer people's objections if I said to you, well, do you think so? Do you think God created the universe? Well, who created God? Okay, how are you going to answer that question? Who created God? Simple question. I get asked that question all the time by cops. <laughs> I, can you answer it? And when you, when you can't answer it, they just, you, you just affirm for me that you're an anti-science, anti-education idiot. And I don't, I'm not going to follow idiots. So what I want us to do in this generation is to know more than we've ever known before about how to answer these questions. Because I think that we are the most skeptical group you're ever going to deal with. You're not going to deal with anyone who's a bigger jerk than a cop. You already know that. Because you're a jerk too, okay? So we already know that. So, so what you have to be able to do is to say, hey, how do I deal with jerks? Um, so this is what helped me to make, start making the case. Number one, I needed to know if any of this stuff was true. And could I make the case from science? Could I, make the I can make the case from God without ever opening the Bible. I can make the case for the Christian God without ever opening the Bible. But I needed to make that to myself. And this is why I say this is a time right now where it's not just about relationships. That's important, but it's about content, information. You have to have both of those things. So I want you to take the time to be the most well-read, informed Christian you've ever been at any point in your career. And if you'll do that, trust me, the way forward will seem a lot clearer. I think Jimmy's more um, – the reason why he, I think he is still 
pretty convinced and still um, in the game is because he knows enough about scripture. And that's why he's writing on our website because he knows enough about scripture to say, okay, I, I know for these four or five reasons, why well, I don't need to panic. And, and I can share with you why I'm not panicked because I know these four or five things are still true. Um, but it is frustrating for him. Let me tell you what his biggest sadness is. His biggest sadness is that his agency is starting to dial down on what they will allow him to do, especially in California right now. It's crazy. No one's going to jail for anything. And that started about two years ago. It, it's not recent. That started when they started emptying out the jails to save money. And when they did that, it, they changed everything basically into a citable misdemeanor. And stuff that I used to take people to jail for as a felony is now, a, it's, we're not going to hold you because we don't, we don't want you to go to county. We're just going to give you a citation and an order to appear. So, so that's been, his, his frustration has more to do with what is happening culturally than it is with the job itself. Does that make sense? And I think he's, he's feeling like, Hey, I'm just, I, what is the point of this? I mean, they, they, he had one case where the guy steals a, a car in Beverly Hills. They cited him out. He steals a car in Lenox. They cited him out. He steals a car in Torrance. They cited him out. We catch him on the fourth car, but they canceled the pursuit. So they got away. So it's like, what are we doing here? I mean, is anything a crime anymore? That's where his frustration lies. Um, so I think it's it's just a matter of us trying to work through those frustrations because we know there's a God that's bigger than that and that you're not here. By the way, no one's when you get to heaven, God's not going to say, hey, so um, what did you do to enjoy your job? He's going to say, who'd you bring with you? That's what he's going to say. <laughs> so a lot of what we're doing here is to make a decision about, hey, am I enough of a model? Do I have the attitude that I not only lived the life I was called to live, but I brought people with me? And that's where I want us to kind of make that transition. Phenomenal. I think that's a really encouraging outlook because it is easy to get sucked into because we're seeing the same things in Baltimore City and even where the county nearby, it's not quite as bad as up there yet, but it's something that's happening across the nation. And it is, you hear that all the time, like, why is it worth it? By the time I finish my paperwork, he's already out or whatever. Right. Like I have no power to do anything. So why am I risking my life? Well, and think about it this way. And in, in just in the act of actually making the arrest, look, these guys in Atlanta were making an arrest for a deuce. Okay. So you don't know what you're going to get into. And so the question is, if I'm going to arrest somebody who ultimately will be out before I'm done with the shift, but the arrest itself might go sideways and I can get in some serious trouble, can you see why? I mean, you already know why. This is why so many people are like, ah, you know what? Now, let me tell you the selfish advice I did give my son. I said, well, I'll tell you what. Um, it turns out that people still want you to work homicides. And all the hesitation they might have about other crimes and what your presence on the street is, uh, they don't hold that about, about homicides. They still want, they still love cold cases getting solved. They still love homicides getting worked. Um, and so at some point, I think I'll, he'll probably shift. He wants to be in, where, where can I go in 2020 to, to max out what I want to do as a police officer and, and, and not have the limits that the state, the county, or the agency will put on me so I don't feel like I can even do the job safely anymore. Well, at some point, you're going to see a lot of people are going to shift over toward investigative positions because that hasn't really changed. And how I work a homicide in 2020 is not a lot different than how I first started working homicides in 1995 or how my dad worked in 1970. So it really hasn't changed a lot. What the, and, and, and the joy you get in solving a murder and in putting someone in jail for a murder and the penalty you even get, even in California, is still what it should be. So there's, a, there's still places that I think if you're frustrated in that sense, you can still maneuver and feel like you're having a huge impact as a police officer. 
We had someone in the audience say they second that because they were in homicide recently as well. Um, yeah. So, so I, I tell you, by the way, homicides, working on homicide in a bedroom community or in a, um, is, is, I think those are the most devious where, where a husband has plotted for five years to kill his wife and he set everything up perfectly so when he gets rid of her that no one's going to be able to convict them. Those are the funnest cases to work, right? Because those are the ones that, that they thought they got away with murder. And, and those are the ones I love to work. It's a lot of fact, in all our cold cases, we put uh, high priority on those first because those were the biggest puzzles. They were the funnest to work. And we knew that all these cases were cold. Nobody expected anything to happen with any of them. So we thought we had our choices and we would choose the ones where the biggest puzzles. I feel like I could, we could do a whole separate seminar and just yeah, listen to all the stories that you have, but I, I guess we could catch Dateline, some of the other pre-recorded ones as well. Um, yeah. So I have one more question off the top of my head. Um, yeah. You were mentioned earlier, you know, when you were working the street, you know, in your career, you went through some tough times. Your father went through some really tough times, the Rodney King riots and things like that. Yeah. Do you see where we're at in law enforcement today as something that's cyclical where it's just, hey, the pendulum is swinging and we're back to kind of bottom? Or is this like a unique... Hey, like this is something serious. This is different. We're facing some new threats, new enemies that, you know, things could be changed from here on out if we don't step up. Okay. So let me just say that, that I've got a series I've done. On, it's on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. It's called Bridging the Thin Blue Line. And you'll see it on our YouTube page, Cold Case Christianity. Just type it in YouTube. You'll find the, our page. It's the second playlist. And I, that's it to me. I was going to write a book on this called Bridging the Thin Blue Line. And we had Regnery willing to publish it. But I realized there's no middle ground anymore. There's no like uh, reasonable middle that you can discuss this, these issues with. We are so polarized that it used to be we'd say, okay, well, you know, I listened to what you said. I don't agree with you. Now we're like, I listened to what you said, and you are an evil jerk who should be executed. <laughs> okay, that's, that's where we are in our polarization, okay? And you see it on social media. I've got a pretty large Twitter uh, uh, platform, and, man, it's, like, it's, it's depressing. You've got to not, not pay attention to the people, things people say because they can be pretty depressing. So we didn't write the book because I I, 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 what I don't want to do is divide an audience that will no longer listen to our presentation of the gospel. The gospel is the cure. The gospel is upstream of any problem we're having in culture right now. What's upstream is, is the Bible true, and should we take it seriously? That's all it is. If we agree on those two things, the Bible's true. And, you know, we should take it seriously, not cherry-pick out verses, but actually read things in context, study it with our strong hermeneutics. We understand what it's trying to tell us. Take it seriously. And then we should do what it is Jesus has told us to do and take that seriously. Well, guess what? We're going to pretty much agree on everything else. We disagree right now because either one we're one, we don't think the Bible's true. Or we think it's true, but we just kind of like, you know, there's a verse, oh, I can appropriate that for my cause. This is the problem, is we don't think it's true and we don't to take it seriously as a culture. And so that's where I, I, most of my work goes. So I didn't write the book. But I will tell you that um, that, con that series is controversial in the sense that if you're going to bridge something, someone's on this side of the gap, someone's on that side of the gap, and they're going to bridge across to the middle, you don't bridge anything. You don't get on a bridge unless you're willing to leave the, your edge. If you're not willing to leave your side, you're not going anywhere. Oh, well, you just come over to my side. That's what everyone says. No, no. If you're going to bridge toward each other, you both are going to have to leave your edges. And in this conversation, both of us hold on to views that are not necessarily true. And then we castigate the other side. So, for example, here's what I hear happening. You'll hear people say, all police officers are, police officers are racist. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that there are some racist police officers. 
there's this is a huge 800,000 of us nationally. You don't think there's going to be a, a, a racist in there somewhere? You can't get racists out of the doctoring uh, profession or out of a fire a fire uh, fireman. Every profession has got someone in there probably shouldn't be there. But to say that every police officer is a racist is a completely different thing. Even if you found some percentage to be racist, you cannot judge the entire group on that small percentage. The other side will say, well, look, we're not racist. It's that you guys are always doing all the crimes. Really? Look at the statistics. Not statistics of how many people are, what, what, what racist crimes are, occur as, but in that, whatever racial group you're looking at, look at what percentage of them are doing those kinds of crimes. You're going to see it's a very, very small percent. So it turns out we look at each other and we say, we nut pick. We take the nuts and we say, you're all like those nuts. And there are nuts in both groups. And we nut pick those groups and then we point to each other and we say, well, you're all like this. All, all is a liar. Every, all, always. These are things that make you a liar faster than anything else. Never, you cannot overgeneralize. Not everyone's like that, even if there's some percentage that are. But we nut pick. So what I would say, in order for us to bridge this gap, we're both going to have to get real about the other side and realize that the vast majority on both edges, actually, we agree on a lot of stuff. And we're not the people you think we are on either edge. And we can come together on a lot of stuff if we'll stop. And this is something you see in scripture. Racism almost always arises when we treat people like groups rather than individuals like groups rather than individuals. So if I say, oh, that group's all, and when you watch something on TV and you say, okay, I see all this looting. And now you're gonna say, well, see, they're all a bunch of looters. Okay, you're treating them as groups and not as individuals. Oh, I saw that police officer beat that guy. Oh, police officers are all beat. You're treating us as a group rather than as individuals. And when you treat people as groups, as tribes, you become more tribal. Tribalism grows, when you start thinking people are just tribes. No, no, we're all individuals. Here's what God says in his word. that we, He doesn't judge us on the outward appearance, but on the inward condition of our heart. He doesn't say, I judge you not on your outward appearance, but on your group. Whatever your group does, you're screwed. That's not what God says. He looks at the individual heart. So we have to do the same thing. Stop seeing each other as groups. There's an interesting study that was done in the 1940s of a Japanese couple that went through and, and they rented um, hotel rooms. And as they came to each hotel room to rent them, uh, even though there was a prohibition at that time after World War II was already in place and the Japanese were not uh, considered trustworthy by some of these hotel owners, they would typically not rent to Japanese. But when they came in, the couple, they rented to them because they saw them as individuals. Now, they went back home and they called to see if they could put a reservation over the phone as a Japanese couple, and they were denied. Over the phone, it was easier to see them as a group. But when you see people as individuals, so this is, I'm telling you, if we start to see people as groups, this kind of racism rises on both sides. And by the way, it's not racism. I'll tell you what it is. It's, I call this otherism. It's called otherism. Here's what I mean by that. We've done a bunch of psychology studies on this. We are, we are drawn toward people who are like us. Did you realize you're far more likely to marry somebody with your educational level? You're far more likely to, we know now that we do DNA tests. And if you DNA test couples who are married, they share more common DNA than couples who aren't. We even seek each other 
even on personality studies, people you hang out with at work, if you could do a, a Myers-Briggs personality test on all those people, you'd find you all have the same characteristics. We are drawn toward people who are like us. I carry a Glock. Uh, I don't have it with me right now. It's in my other room, okay? So I carry a Glock. I don't know how you guys carry Glocks, but they're great guns. You can throw them on the ground, get them dirty. They still, they work great. If you don't even clean your gun in your entire career, if you have a Glock, if you have a Colt, I had a Colt before this, okay? That thing will jam up. But if you have a Glock, you can still shoot your gun. That's how great Glocks are. I showed them to my wife's family, and they looked at them because they came over from Germany. I said, well, said, what are you shooting? In German, I said, I'm shooting a Glock. I show them the Glock. Ah, garbage. Why? It's Austrian. Yeah, it's Austrian. You realize there's a border in southern Germany. My family lives about 30 miles above that Austrian border. Their language, their culture, their food, their dress, their architecture is identical. That line has only been there since uh, World War II. They were all the same group. But now there's a line in the dirt. And they look over the line at the same people who exactly like they can be relative, they can be family. And they say, ah, Austrians. Why do we do that? We are otherists. We look for reasons to divide. You work gangs in the city? You know this to be true. In our city, we have a gang map because you have Crips and Bloods. And sometimes only one street divides that. And I've got cousins on the other side in that clique. And I'm not part of that clique. And I wear different colors. Okay, you're the same ethnic, racial, even have the same DNA, your blood relatives. Yet you've chosen to divide over gang turf. Why do we do this? Because we are in our heart at our very base nature, otherists. And the science actually demonstrates. I've collected all the studies on how we are drawn to people who are like us. Look at um, wedding pictures. You'll very seldom see wedding pictures that are multi-ethnic. Almost always wedding pictures are monochromatic because you, if you're in an Asian family, you probably have mostly Asian people at your wedding. We are monochromatic for a reason, because we are drawn to each other. The church is the most segregated. I mean, look at the church right now. My dad's in, 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 in Northeast Texas. In his town, there is a, a Baptist church two blocks away from the other Baptist church. One is white, one is black. They are voluntarily segregated from each other. Why do we do this? <laughs> we do this because we are otherists. And it happens to come out this, by the way, if we were all the same race, all the same height, all the same sex, all the same physical appearance, we define something else to divide over. We say, oh, well, you live on the odd side of the street. I live on the even side of the street. Odd people are odd. We define something to divide over because we're just ingrained toward this kind of otherism. So I think part of what we have to do going forward as a group is to recognize that you can take all the other stuff out. This is a problem of the heart. No government solution will solve this. But a gospel solution will. And so in the end, only the gospel addresses the otherism that we all possess. And yeah, I get it. It's being expressed right now in our culture. And you ask this question, I will tell you, um, I think we're in a unique situation here that's different than, than Rodney King, different than the Watts Summer Riots. It's all based on the treatment and the issue of race, for sure. But remember, this came at the end of five weeks of quarantine where we said you can't even go out on the beaches to run, but you can't go protest. So if you're bored and just want to get the heck out of the house, you can't go to the beach, you can't go to the mall, you can't go to the outdoor, but you can go protest. And you're out of work. <laughs> 40 million people out of work who can, who can actually can protest. I was watched one a couple of weeks ago, young people all over this protest. What are you guys doing here? Well, today was going to be our high school graduation, but they canceled it, so we all came here. There's another 600 people there who are protesting.
Why is that happening? We're in a unique situation this year. Do I think it's still something still would have happened? Of course, because when this kind of thing happens, there's going to be a response. I get that. But this is a unique response. You cannot subtract out what was happening with the COVID and you cannot subtract out the fact that no one's able to go to work. And the fact that you canceled all the stuff, like kids are not even in school. You've canceled everything that would have prevented them from even protesting. So, so you, you're, you're really going to have a unique situation, I think. This is a perfect storm. And now you're seeing it's a perfect cultural storm. Could, could, I, I got to tell you, I never thought I'd see a day. Like, like how many people on your, your profession, and my, my, we have the American flag on the side of our car. But that's on the side of a lot of police cars. But that is now becoming something that people now have associated with the bad, evil history of, Christ, of, of, uh, of America. There's an entire group of young people who now see that as an offensive sign. Because you believe in the founding fathers who were all slave owners, most of them. And so how can I, you're, that's an offensive symbol. Now I want you to think about that for a second. That, that's going to change the way we work. A lot of you have the American flag somewhere on a uniform or on, a, on, a, on your car. And if we're going to change the meaning of that symbol, then we're going to have a new reality for us as police officers. I'm not saying it's good, bad, or otherwise. I'm just saying you know that, and I know that's going to happen. But I didn't think I'd see that in my lifetime. Here's what, and I'll say one, one thing about this too, Josh. Um, I still fly the American flag, guys. You probably do too. Not because I'm stubborn. Not because I'm stubborn. Because I'm like, no, damn, I'm not going to bend my knee to you guys who say I shouldn't fly. And no, that's not why I do that. I see America in it for its true greatness, and I, I have an analogy for this I want to share with you. Uh, I'm married to a woman who has got a system in place in her psyche that is so amazing because I don't care if she does anything she should. If she says something she shouldn't say, does something she shouldn't do, her system is such that she is in, she's pretty immediately repentant. She gets it, she adjusts, and she does better the next day. And so she forces me to also move in this direction of sanctification because she has a system. Her mental system is such that she's She's quick to adapt, to sense, oh, that was wrong, to be repentant, and then to, be, to try to make herself better the next day. And I've been watching this for 41 years. I am married to her because that system is in place. And that's why for me, she's like the perfect, I mean, she's perfect because she has this system in place. Now, America is similar in the sense that it can make mistakes in the past, and it has, there's no doubt about it. But what a system that can adjust, that has a, can give a voice to the voiceless. It may take time, but the system it, it actually can, can move in a direction towards sanctification. If you think this can happen in a Marxist country or in a dictatorship or in a communist country, you're not paying attention to history. This happens here. And yes, are there things that Susie's done that are stupid in the past, like me, like everybody? Of course. But she's got a system in place that allows her to adjust, reconsider, repent, move forward. And I see America the same way, is that the reason why we're able to have these expressions of protest, trust me, in Tiananmen Square, they just ran people over with tanks, okay? They put those things down quick. We actually have the system in place because we are in a country that is allows this kind of thing, that allows us to consider the facts, allows us to move forward with new realities. So I actually am very encouraged by, what, by the fact that we're here, and I'm not willing to burn down the flag because it turns out the flag represents not just a history. Of course it does. And by the way, there is certainly a price to be paid for our history. I get that. But it also represents a system that allows us to make changes moving forward. 
Mr. Wilson, just a question on that kind of with the culture, right, in the society. Like you mentioned, a group of young people who might see the flag as a as an offensive term. And just as like Christians and, and people were like, yes, we can lead by example. We can be this thing of what a reflection of Christ's love for sure. But is there any other kind of like unique things that we might be able to look to to help change or at least show this new culture, this generation, uh, what God's love looks like, not just an example, but like um, some other ways that we might be able to reach them. There's a guy named Josh McDowell who's a Christian apologist, and he's done a lot of work. He wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He's done a bunch of stuff. His son is named, is named Sean McDowell, and Sean and I just wrote a, a book called So the Next Generation Will Know, which is about Gen Z. So we did a lot of time studying Gen Z first and then saying, well, what can we do with this generation? And I'll tell you that it is those two things we talked about, relationships and information. So what we tend to think is I'm just going to present myself in every situation in a way that is honorable. That's good. But it, the, the deeper we, I, I were gangs for two years and we we're right in South Central Los Angeles. Okay. So I knew we had a big click in the North end of town that we had to deal with before I became a gang officer. I just knew that click was there. I'd patrol, I'd see him. I'd, I'd kind of like, you know, we'd have interactions with them. We'd, you know, have to take people to jail on occasion, but now I was assigned to gangs. And over the next two years, I, I knew every single one of those kids by name. And I say kids, you know, sometimes, you know, like 17 to 23, but I, I knew I was, I was like 40. So I knew those kids by name and it was that relationship that changed everything. They now knew me. And I also knew I cannot be one of you guys. I had a young partner and he, he could talk the talk and walk the walk. That's not who I am. I'm an old white guy. I get it. Right. So all I can be is paternal. Okay. I'm an old guy, but that was that paternal relationship with those gang members that I really respect. They respected me. I respected them. It was in the in context of relationship where somebody would, would stop them and they say, Hey, do you know Jim Wallace? Uh, because they knew me and they knew me by name. And I had spent a lot of time just talking to these guys. And so I, it wasn't just a matter of I could identify everyone in a six pack, which I could, but as I could tell you who his dad was and what's his situation at home. Uh, and I would ask questions that maybe an uncle would ask of you. You know, I'd ask questions beyond, you know, the stuff that you just do, the preliminary stuff you do on the street. I really wanted to know who these guys were. And I wasn't a Christian at this time. But I just realized that the only way I can make this work is to take advantage of my age difference and my paternal. I have, I have had white hair for 25 years. So I already look old to begin with. So I just, I just, I'm just going to move with that. I'm just going to be the old guy who's in your life who actually is more paternal. And, and that's, that was the role I played. Now, I became a great source of information because I knew what was going on. But I did struggle with maintaining those relationships because it's about what? It's about truth, the claim. And relationship, and sometimes as police officer, we're just there to execute the truth. We're out there to to, to make sure the truth gets gets the law being broken, and that, that that's true. The law is being broken, so we're out there to kind of just express the truth side of it. But when you have relationship with people, it's a lot easier to, to do this, right? So that's why I worked with a guy my first year, my first month of training coming out of the academy. I thought he was crazy because man, this dude. He worked downtown. He would go door like an old-fashioned beat cop. He'd knock. He knew every single store owner in his beat. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm already tired. I don't, I don't, I, I couldn't have ever worked this way, right? I mean, I mean, this is like he lived in that neighborhood. Okay, so they all knew him as a neighbor and as the local cop. But dude could solve anything because anytime anything happened, he was like, "Oh, I know who that is. I know that guy. Despise description. I know everyone in this neighborhood." And I'm like, "Okay." 
um, I realized that that, and by the way, when you do that, you no longer see people as groups. You see them as individuals. Then it's, it's less likely that you're going to go. You'd say to yourself, you have a conversation with your partner and you go, Oh, I know that kid. He's a good guy. He's a gangster. Actually. Yeah. He means in the click, but I, I know him. He's not that they're not that he's not that guy. Okay. He's totally different than that. We're not, we're less likely to judge everyone as one big more, you know, uh, amorphous group if we know their backstories personally. So that's, that's, I think that, you know, this idea of community policing, uh, I get, I hate that buzzword. And I, I think it can be interpreted about a thousand different ways when you use that. But if what you mean by community policing is that we are going to start to acknowledge people as individuals rather than as groups, I'm all for it. Oh, that's great. So many people nowadays, like you, you put people in groups and substrata and all that kind of stuff and you don't get that, have the same effect. And like a lot of people just want to be heard and want to be understood. So well, I look, think that's, that's a big you see this part happening of it. Now, right. Okay. So we see some um, issue of violence on TV that's involving a police officer and a citizen. Okay, fine. And, and then what happens is all of us now are going to be screamed at during a protest as if I had anything to do with that, as if I would even handle it the same way. <laughs> Right now, at the same time, as we're watching this thing on TV and we're watching looters burn down a city, we're doing the exact same thing. Look, they're all like that. Okay, we're not all like this, and you're not all like that. We have to be a little more nuanced about this. And so, when when we are heard to say something or to express a view that seems like a group take, then don't be surprised that they're going to give us their group take. So we have to kind of stop doing this in advance with our language. Cause that's why they're doing it back to us. I appreciate it so much. Uh, Mr. Wallace, I just want to say, cause I want to be sensitive to, to your time as well. I know it's Saturday uh, out there, but thank you so much for, for joining us today and, and getting yeah. to like talk to us and I love just picking your brain. Obviously I'm going to check out a couple more books. Uh, I think that a lot of us can take what you said today and apply it to our lives. And I personally was convicted um, about that same thing you just mentioned, right? Like group think like that is what the danger is. Uh, even with conversations of my friends who have a different viewpoint, uh, I am very quick to get frustrated and get angry. It's like, oh, that's because yeah. you're this way. Yeah. So that's definitely convicting for me. Um, something I'm going to look forward to to applying in my own life for sure. Thanks again for joining us at Tenth Line Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did and you want to find out more about what we're doing, you can find us on social media or join us on our website at Enterline.co. And that's Enterline.co.